to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am so freaking excited, you guys. This conversation, I think, is just going to blow a lot of people's minds. So um, I'm with Kristen tonight, and we're talking about all of her work with non-dogs. She trains a lot of species, probably her own dog, but I'm so excited to learn from you. Okay, so do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and the certification that you hold. Yeah, so my name is Kristen. I am a certified professional bird trainer. Um, so it's a lot similar to the dog training certificate you have. Um, and I'm a zookeeper at the Denver Zoo and I work with ambassador animals. So my job is all about educating people with a ton of different species and taxa um, and bringing those animals up close. And so I do a lot of, and a lot of training with all different species. Oh my God. And that's so crazy because you take all of those species. Well, I mean, obviously COVID I'm sure has thrown a wrench in some of the ambassador programs, (laughs) but like you're taking these species out into the world, right? So like you really got to know the animal well and make sure that that training is proved to a level where they could be successful. Yeah, exactly. That's what I always tell people is, you know, most of the time at the zoo, the animals have their space and you have yours and we invade everyone's space and it's really fun. Um, So yeah, it takes a lot of training and confidence building in us as well as the animals. Um, Cause yeah, it's a lot of trust we're putting in a lot of different creatures to be able to handle the different situations we throw at them. Oh my God. Okay. And then in your, in your personal time outside of work, can you tell the listeners um, what you do? Do you call it falconry? Am I pronouncing that right? I, you know, I don't, okay, cool. Okay. So do you want to tell them more about that? (laughs) Yeah, so I just started, um, I'm an apprentice falconer, so I'm in my first um, few years, and it's just hunting with a trained bird of prey, so like a hawk, um, falcon, eagle, or owl, Um, and yeah, I just wanted to take it up a notch and try it out on my own, so that's what I'm doing in my free time. It's been a really good COVID, I wouldn't say hobby, because it's definitely much more than a hobby, lifestyle. (laughs) Um, but it's been really well timed with all of this craziness. Yeah, that's so amazing. Okay, so I want to circle back to falconry, but I, I want to kind of go back a little bit because I think it's always really interesting to kind of hear how people got started. So, like, what did you do before you started working at the zoo? How'd you get interested in animal training? Yeah, so I was like a lot of kids when you're growing up, where you say, like, I'm gonna be a veterinarian. Um, so I went to college, you know, kind of in just that mindset and got there, didn't love that idea once I got (laughs) into school and I had a really great advisor that was showing me a bunch of different avenues I could go down. And, um, I, it was in Missouri. And so I ended up going to a few different zoos in Missouri and I loved zookeeping. I did some internships and I just liked the day-to-day getting to see an animal constantly like that. Um, So it kind of after that was a really 
straight shot for me. I just had that through college, had that plan, did internships and um, made my way into zookeeping. And I just, I really liked it. It After that, it was, there wasn't really no other option for me. Right, like, and this is the job for me. Yeah. Oh my God, so. I didn't so ever think about it before this, but I fell in love. And it, that starting in zookeeping, it, you know, it's a lot of actually taking care of the animals, you know, that day-to-day -day care. But then the training part was always the most satisfying part of my day. And so that's really become the thing that I love the most about my day. Right. And I'm sure it's such a beautiful thing to like slowly build a relationship with a wild animal and get to know them as an individual, you know, outside of just like the image of like, oh, this is a rhino or whatever. Right. Yeah. I get to, you know, you start building trust and you learn their personalities and that's super fun because we know that all animals, you know, have them. Um, but it's just interesting to see how they are different species to species and, and individuals too. So yeah, it's been really fun. And now I work with so many that it's really cool. I have over a hundred animals in my department. And so it's really fun to have the variety too. Oh my God. Okay. So what was the first animal you trained like in the zoo world? Yeah. So trained kind of on my own was some of our raptors. Um, I had really good keeper mentors that taught me a lot about raptors when I started at my first zoo in Texas. And so first bird I felt really satisfied with working with was a turkey vulture and training him to come out and sit on the glove and, and get to meet people up close was really, really fun. And that was the first guy that I started to see my own work put in and, you know, get a lot out of it. So oh my God. after that, it was, I stuck with raptors. <laughs> Yes. Right. And I think that like everyone listening can totally relate to that feeling when like they've kicked ass and they taught their dog something really awesome. Yeah. Right. Just like that satisfaction, but you have the added bonus of like, actually it's a Raptor. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's where I needed to start because dogs are so much harder. And then, you know, you get the avalanche going like, Oh, I can do this. I just, yeah, I have to figure out the different ways how, but yeah, it just was a slightly different start than most people. Right. Okay. So I'm really curious to hear, like, in addition to, you know, the skill set that the animals need to be in the ambassador program, like what other behaviors, um, did you work on like training the animals? Like, I know that a lot of my listeners have heard me talk about cooperative care in dogs. And I think that the way that it works in like the zoo system is so beautiful. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So we yeah call them like husbandry behaviors where it's, you know, things that help take care of them. And it's all just trying to minimize their stress as much as possible. It gets interesting because working with certain species, I mean, dogs too, you can get yourself into sticky situations and you have um, dangerous animals, potentially some animals you can't even go in with and work freely with. Um, so yeah, that's an added difficulty. Um, and just trying to, so you have to, there's no way you can coerce an animal or decide it's not going to have a choice in something. It needs a choice. And even my animals that for the most part, I'm very hands-on with, I don't want to make them do anything. And I want them to be as little stressed as possible. So we do a lot of behaviors and as much as we can, anytime we get in a new animal, we say, this is what we're going to make sure they know how to do before we even start looking to do the really fun stuff for our education programs, we say, 
can we trim their nails? Can we check all over their bodies? Can you do all these little things so that they're cared for before we start doing any of the extra stuff? Um, that's, you know, just icing on the cake at that point. Right, right. It's a matter of function, right? Like there, it's a, it's a, it's a non-negotiable, right? Like you, you, exactly. you can't have a zoo animal and not have those things and that training on board. Right. Yeah. People need to know that we give them the best care and we need, you know, be able to show that and, you know, put our, I don't know, like be able to prove it. And so we want to make sure that that's the number one priority for us is always the animal's you know, showing them to people, having them on exhibit for people, that's, that's secondary, honestly, especially to me personally. Um, it's making sure they're taken care of first and that they're not stressed out and they're having a really good time. <laughs> that's what I always say, like, my job is making animals happy. And then everything else is just extra and great. Right. Well, and I think, I don't know if you want to speak to this a little bit, but I think that oftentimes people hear zoo and I think they're very quick to be like, animals mm -hmm. shouldn't be in zoos and all of this, but the Denver Zoo goes above and beyond to make sure that all of the animals in their care, their needs are being met. They're being enriched. They're healthy. They have proper nutrition. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's beautiful work that you all do. Yeah. It's even just coming to this zoo, it's amazing how much every little bit of their lives is looked at. Um, we have a, a welfare committee and a director of welfare. And so we make sure that every little aspect of what we do um, is for their best interest. And then we document and see how they're doing over the course of their lives so that they are as happy as they can be. It's super scientific too. So we're making sure that we have concrete evidence that they're happy. Yeah, we have those, you know, like amazing nutrition. We have amazing veterinary care, all these really cool things um, that, yeah, just puts us above and beyond. And it makes me really proud to work there. And yeah, it you just want to be able to talk to people so that you can tell them all these things because there's so much that goes into it. It's really hard to even get, <laughs> it's like a glacier to actually get to the root of like, we do a lot of really good stuff. You're just seeing a little bit because you're seeing them for, you know, an hour when you come visit and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, so yeah, I will forever be an advocate for really great zoos like Denver. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, I think something that will be really interesting to the listeners is maybe hearing like what you use as reinforcers, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and, and how that works in training different species. So like, I mean, what, if you want to talk about, you know, working, um, with, with falcons or, or whatever. But I think that, you know, I, on this podcast, a lot, I talk about high value reinforcements, right? Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to kind of hear like what different species find actually reinforcing when you need it to be in a training setting. Yeah. So with raptors, it's really nice. Um, like we said earlier, they're pretty, um, pretty simple in a way where, they don't have any real connection to us. You know, they're very wild and instinctual and honestly very selfish animals. So for them, reinforcement is food, is being able to survive. And, you know, it's gross to some people, but it's usually, you know, it's they're carnivores. So I'm chopping up mice and chick and all kinds of gross things to some people. And that's their, their primary reinforcer. Um, other animals get a little bit more complicated. We have like our parrots, a lot more like dogs. 
in that they're very social um, and they do find reinforcement from us and from interactions with us and others. And so that always makes it really, really interesting to try to, to work and train with them just because they do find so many more things rewarding. It's not just food and survival. Um, and then, yeah, those two are the ones that stick out usually are always, they're such polar opposites, even though they're both birds. Um, and then our mammals, they also, even if they're wild animals, they still key in, I think to us a lot more too. I think being mammals and um, they, they're easier to relate to and, you know, vice versa. So it's a lot more like dogs. They just, the dogs are so much more complicated than all of my animals. <laughs> and yeah, so that's what I always, we always tell people is that don't feel bad for how difficult it is to train dogs. It's by far the hardest animal I've ever trained. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of different species and they're so much more complicated. Right. Well, and guys, before we got started, we were talking about, you know, how Kristen feels like, you know, the raptors are easier to train because it's it's very cut and dry, right? Their motivation doesn't lie in human beings. It, it lies in getting access to food. So it presents just like a simpler setup, right? Because the motivation yeah. is consistent. The reinforcement is consistent. But I think that like, you know, the emotional nuance between people and dogs, I think that that's just a whole other element, right? Like we can talk yeah. all day about the quadrants of learning and how right. to apply and how to modify behavior, but I don't think it always accurately depicts like the subtleties of like the relationship between humans and dogs. Yes, exactly. That's, that's why falconry and just working with um, raptors has helped me learn a lot about training because they are, you know, pretty cut and dry so that I can kind of put everything into a box of what am I doing to create this reaction in them? Cause it's, there's not as many variables and it's so much more complicated. And anytime I try to do that with a dog, I'm like, how, what am I doing? <laughs> Cause it just, oh yeah. So many more variables. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. I so just have so much respect. I want to talk a little bit about the ambassador <laughs> program. Um, so, so what does that look like as far as like a skill set of trained behaviors that you need from the animals? So like, maybe if you want to go through like two or three of the species that are part of the program and kind of just detailing like what the different species needs as far as like a skill set of trained behaviors. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depends on even more the individual. Um, so like our parrot, they're all trained to weigh themselves. Um, they're trained for nail trims and overall kind of inspection so we can make sure that they're doing all right. And then depending on what that individual can do, um, they're trained to do flights. So we start doing free flying. So there's nothing containing them. They have full choice in <laughs> leaving or, or going. Um, and then that's, it kind of depends. They can do fun little kind of smaller tactile activities where we can talk about recycling and they can kind of show off how smart they are and also get a message across, you know. Um, it kind of just depends on what the individual really likes to do. Like we have some parrots who can't fly. They never learned how to fly or, or a raptor that um, is injured and won't be able to fly again. So we kind of change what our plan is for them and we do smaller things, but try to keep it um, something that they would naturally do. So, you know, parrots are really tactile and they like to chew on things and climb on things. So we'll make sure that we 
we hit those boxes and um, we have a serval, you know, an African serval, which is a, a bigger cat, African cat, and make sure he goes on walks and he, he's doing his jumping and things he would do out in the wild. And, but also he can get his vaccines and we can get up close and check all over his body, all that little stuff too. So um, those are a few of the things we do, but then, you know, we have reptiles as well. And those are really fun because we hold our reptiles and we can get close and do all those things already. But we also like to push the boundaries of what they can learn and what, what we already think that they can do and prove that they can do more, um, which is really fun. So we, we target, we can target train, you know, the reptiles and some of the lizards and we can, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. We can teach them to do nail trims. Um, there's all, it's kind of really fun to just see where we can go. And that's my favorite part is, you know, pushing the boundaries of what people think you can do with certain species and saying like, oh no, they're much more smart than you give them credit for. Right. Oh my God. Okay. And seriously, everything <laughs> you said, this is what I preach to all of my amazing dog clients is like, what is your individual dog's preferences? What are their genetic tendencies, right? Like how are they thriving? Let's set yeah. that up so that we can get more of that. And, and I love so much what you said about it being about the individual, right? It's not about an agenda that you have to make the parrot do this or that. It's looking at the individual parrot and how right. they thrive and, and accomplishing your mission of educating the public. Yeah, it's really, especially here, it's been really fun because we don't have an agenda really. And our, my boss is really good about finding, you know, just saying like, all right, they, they can't do that. We, you know, we tried something we thought that they would enjoy. Um, but, you know, you find out like, all right, well, we're just going to switch it up. And as long as you're flexible, then then it works out really well. And it's just that much more enjoyable because they're enjoying it. Um, and I think it's, you know, made me a better dog owner too. have doing this. It's like, all right, what do you naturally want to do? Like my bird wants to fly and, you know, going out and spending time with them like that. I'm like, all right, my dogs need that too. Like they need, they need to fly. <laughs> they need to get out and sniff and do all that stuff. Um, it's really nice to be able to, to do that and just, go based on what they want to do. And it's all going to just be so much more enjoyable for us and them in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, okay. So I want to hear from you just a little bit. So can you just speak to the listeners about like what you're utilizing as far as like the quadrants of learning are concerned when you're, you're working on training? Yeah. So we are largely, you know, positive reinforcement. Um, and the overarching is just, is, their choice is there they get to decide if they want to join us and making sure that they have the chance to not participate is really important and something I'm trying to work really hard on now too is is having control too so you know that they can tell me what to do um, and I react to what they're telling me um, is another you know big reinforcer of them wanting to participate um, so it's all <laughs> Gosh, it's hard to like think about your quadrants, <laughs> but we try to stay away from the punishments. <laughs> you know, it's the whole, it's Lima, which is least, you know, least invasive, right. minimally adversive. So um, as much as I can, I try to keep with positive reinforcement. Like with my own bird, um, he's a wild caught first, he's a, a first year bird. So bringing him in, 
he's he's not gonna just automatically love me um so there's certain things that I have to do to make sure he's safe and then I can work on um rewarding him for things and teaching him to trust me um but yeah I don't know okay so so I want to hear I want to hear more about about your bird so um what is your bird's name his name is Chadwick (laughs) there's the big like myth that if you name your falconry bird something really fierce and like killer you know something like that that it's gonna be kind of a wimpy bird and it's not gonna kill anything or hunt or be a really good hunter so you have to give your bird kind of like a regular name or like a silly name um so then they'll be a little bit more fierce in the field um so he's his name is Chadwick Chad um but yeah I guess telling you he's a, a first year bird so the only bird you can trap from the wild is if it was born this year um, so that they already know how to survive, but that they're really pretty flexible and, you know, adults are a lot, they're more set in their ways and it's going to be a lot more stressful to them to start working with someone. So he is only probably about six months old um, and he's a red-tailed hawk. So we hunt jackrabbits and cottontails mostly, but also like squirrels and he'll hunt his own little mice and stuff too, but we're kind of going after slightly bigger things. Oh my God. Okay. So what does the trapping process look like? It's super fun. Um, you have a little kind of mesh cage and it has little monofilament nooses on it, just all over it. It kind of looks like a hat. And then inside you put live bait. So I put little mice into it and then you go driving where you think you're going to see hawks and you look out on, for us, it was telephone lines out in a big open field. And you look for a bird that is in its first year. It doesn't have that red tail yet. And then if you see one, you put the trap out of your car and you drive a little farther out and you sit and wait. And the bird will see the little mice or whatever it is running around in there. And they say, oh, sweet free meal. And they go fly down onto it. They grab the mesh and then their feet get stuck in the little nooses and they can't let go. And then you quick run out of your car and go pick up the bird and unattach him. And there's your bird. So super fun. A lot of sitting in your car with binoculars, just like, please. Patiently waiting and keeping your fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so so does does Chadwick live like in your home with you? He lives, well, right now he's in the house, um, but he has what's called a muse and it's M-E-W-S and it's just his outside enclosure. It's just what you call a raptor enclosure. Um, falconry has a lot of very fancy terms that mean very regular things. <laughs> so he lives outside and um, just sometimes when it's really cold at night, I bring him in because I'm, I like to spoil him and it makes it a little bit easier and he doesn't have, he doesn't need to just, you know, withstand super, super cold weather if he doesn't have to. So I bring him in if it's going to be really, really cold. Um, but yeah, he lives outside, which makes it nice too, because birds are very messy. You know, they can't hold their bladders, so they just poop all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, and but he's native and wild, so he can handle all that nature throws. Um, but we just make it a little bit easier. 
Right. So right now he's inside getting warm, but usually he lives outside. And it basically is like a shed, like a nice big shed with windows. He's very comfy there. Nice. Okay. So can you tell us like what like a weekly, like a weekly routine is for you guys? Like, so are you doing any nutrition stuff or is he eating everything he needs and like the flights that you're taking with him? Can you just tell us more like what that, what that entails, like owning a, a wild bird like that? Yeah. So it's very intensive. Um, I have to train him every single day. Um, it's not, I know like I'm sometimes I'm not good about training my dogs every day, <laughs> you know, I was like, I just need a break. Um, but with him, especially during the hunting season, which is during the winter, I can't take a break. So, um, I provide him food. So usually I'm feeding him quail cause it's really, um, good quality food. And so I decided they're, yeah, they're dead and they're, they're frozen. And then I thaw them out. Um, but so weight management is a really, um, important thing when you're working with birds and especially with raptors. So I weigh out his food. I know exactly how much he needs every day. And I weigh him every day. So in the morning, get out, I can put him on the scale, know how much food I'm going to give him for the day so that he stays at a really healthy weight. Um, and then usually for me, when I get home, I quick, um, do a training session where we either do um, big flights or I fly him to the lure, which is his recall and his like ultimate recall. So that means I'm just going to do one big swing of the lure and he grabs it and he gets all his food for the day. So then if I need to have an emergency recall out in the field, you know, if you're, even if he's really full and he doesn't want to come back and I swing that lure, he knows, oh, I'm going to get so much free food right now. I'm going to come down. Um, so we either do that just to reinforce that he, oh, has, cool. he has that. Um, I do jump ups, which is just him being lower and then jumping straight up vertically um, to a higher location. And it gets him a lot of um, like builds a lot of breast muscle. So really it's I'm like training an Olympic athlete. <laughs> and so he has to be like in top condition um, to be a really, really good hunter. So every day it's something different, kind of try to switch it up. Um, and then on my weekends, we go out hunting and that's when we do our really big, long hunts and we go out searching for, you know, jackrabbits or cottontails. And he's learning really well that I'm going to provide him with opportunities. And that's why he, he knows that like, Oh, I'll stick around with her. She's been giving me food. And also she flushes bunnies for me. (laughs) And, um, so he's learning that like, Oh yeah, they're, they're worth keeping around. So then he is learning to trust me really well. Wow. Oh my God. That is incredible. Okay. So you're going to have to forgive me because I am not up to date on like falconry and all this amazing stuff. (laughs) Like when you're out, like in the field doing a hunt, like what is the positioning look like? Like, is he like stationed on a glove and then like you release him to get things? Like, can you just share with the listeners just a little bit more about like what that sequence looks like? Yeah. So it kind of depends on your terrain and what you're hunting and what type of bird you have. Um, our hawks really like to be up high and get a lot of, um, just have a lot of time to dive down and gain speed and they're grabbing, you know, things on the ground usually. So, um, they can hunt from your hand, but that's just not very high. So usually for me, at least we haven't had a lot of success hunting from only a few feet up. Um, I can get him, I have like a seven foot T perch where he can sit on top. So then he's a lot higher, especially if we're out in the plains. 
Um, so he has, you know, the chance to be able to dive down and gain some speed on something. Um, but like where we went today, it was out at like a horse barn. So he likes to sit on top of the barns and he's super high and then he can dive down. Um, but he's also getting really good at when it's windy, he'll just soar above me. And then we're down there on the ground being the dog basically and flushing. So we're going into the bushes and just rustling and seeing if anything's in there. Um, and then he'll dive down on something. So it kind of depends. And, you know, with falcons, it's even more different because they're doing a lot of their hunting in flight already. Um, so it's just, it's really, really cool. I'm excited to, to work with other species too, to learn all the different nuances of each different kind, but we're mostly, he's going up high into a tree or onto the barns and then we flush stuff and he swings down and tries to grab it. Oh my God, dude, that's like the ultimate teamwork. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's cool to see him growing and trusting us and learning some routines. He's like, all right, we're getting near some bushes. I'm going to set myself up really well. You know, he can tell where we're going to push things. So he'll put him, he'll place himself better. Um, he's getting really smart. And just over years, I can just see they, they're going to get so, he's going to get so smart. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. So, okay. So what is the long-term trajectory trajectory of this? So does Chadwick live with you for the extent of his life? Is this something you do competitively? Like, what does that look like? Um, there are meets where you can kind of compete and, and show off with each other. Um, the really nice thing about trapping a wild bird is that I can release him if I want to. I can also keep him if I want to. Um, some people really like to to release the bird they catch just that next spring. Um, it's really helpful to the animal because the first winter of their lives is really difficult. And most of them, like the vast majority don't make it through their first winter. So with a falconer, they get the chance to like hone their skills um, without having to worry about where their next meal is coming from. Cause even if, if he doesn't have a successful day he's still gonna get food and he doesn't have to worry about um, trying to deal with the cold weather and not catching food. So it's really helpful to the animal and it gets them through the hardest year of their life. So you can release them and feel good that you've, you've helped another. Um, some people like to do that every year and go through that whole process. And then sometimes it's nice to keep a bird and build a better relationship and have a little, maybe have a little bit more success in your hunting. Um, but that's a nice thing about the United States is that we can do that and it doesn't affect the wild populations at all. Wow, okay, so then is this something that is like, could be like a conservation effort if like a bird were to be like in the endangered list? Yeah, it has been. Falconers are a big reason that there are species that have come back. Peregrine falcons have been helped a lot by falconers. Um, I know there's a cool story about goshawks in England um, that they, were really being depleted and falconers loved to work with them. So they said, okay, I'm gonna import a goshawk and every goshawk you import, you have to bring another one and release that one. And so there's stuff, it's a really tight knit community that you know gets together and says, we don't want these birds going anywhere. We gotta figure it out. Um, so there definitely has already been some really good conservation from falconry. And they care so much about the land and preserving land, just like a lot of hunting, you know, you want to preserve wild spaces. So um, it's, it's a really good conservation kind of group of people.
Wow. That is so amazing. It just makes me like fall in love with everything you said, just that much more. You know what I mean? Like knowing that like, it really is for the greater good of the animal and the species at large. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel good too. That even if I decide to release, to release him, that he's better for it and he will still be wild. They, they don't really domesticate quite the same, especially if um, you don't imprint a bird, but um, yeah. It's really pretty cool. Very cool. So um, I want to hear just a little bit about your certification. So so what does that look like as far as like getting certified as, as a bird trainer? Like what was required of you? Um, so that was massive test. And <laughs> I'm sure, you know, um, I don't even know how much is into it, but it, yeah, learning all the fundamentals of training. And then on top of it, bird behavior and training and um Birds are just so different than mammals. They don't hold weight the same. They don't always just think the same or, you know, they're, they're, and there's so many kinds, (laughs) Um, but it's a lot about knowing how to weight manage properly and not um, using it to the detriment of an animal. Cause we have to make sure, especially with raptors that, um, cause they are not interested in pleasing us. Um, you kind of want to find the sweet spot where they're really healthy and happy, but they're hungry for their next meal. Um, so that's kind of what you're looking for with weight management, but sometimes you can, it can be taken advantage of. And, um, if you just keep the bird super hungry, they'll do everything you want, but it's not a healthy way to do it. So it was a lot about learning how to safely, um, work with these animals and weight manage and, and interact, um, and just know kind of the ins and outs of, um, properly training a bird. It's just so different. And it's a a very unique experience with a bird who can fly away from you and fully decide, I don't want to come back. Um, and it's, I mean, dogs and mammals can do it too, but usually in the zoo field, there's some form of containment. Um, so it's just a really interesting thing to like, you're putting a lot of trust in the relationship you've built and, you know, all the training you've put in and that they want to participate. It makes you feel really good (laughs) when they do do that for you. But, um, so yeah, just kind of honing in all of that, bringing all that information was, the big test and then, you know, sit down for, I don't even know how long and go through it all and make sure you, <laughs> you pass, you know, with certain percentage. Um, so yeah, I spent months and months studying. There's a group of us that did it all together, which was really nice. So you had someone to commiserate with, but um, yeah. And so then after that, I got my certification and then you have to keep up with it. So you have to make sure that you're staying in the know with, you know, all the latest knowledge um, yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So, done. <laughs> so, okay. So, so are you learning from just other like professionals, like in the falconry field, like, like seminars and stuff like that, or like, what does your continued education look like? So the certification, um, the bird certification is a lot of zoo people. Um, and even, even, um, kind of like pet animal trainers too. So yeah, it's a lot of, other zoo people and seminars through zoos a lot. Um, but then falconry is a completely separate 
certification and huge, much more intense process. <laughs> um, with falconry, it is, you have to take a massive test and it's just even more specific about raptors and their biology, their natural history, training, um, their care, and then have to pass that test. And then you have to have a sponsor who is, you know, a falconer who's been doing this for a long time that says, I will vouch for them and I will help them through it. And that's when you're an apprentice for two years. And then the state will come out and they inspect whatever you build that you're gonna be housing your bird in. And so they come out and inspect and make sure that you're up to, up to par um, because these birds are super regulated and, and protected. Um, so they don't just hand out falconry licenses very easily. Thank the Lord that <laughs> yeah. they do that. Oh my yeah. God. That's amazing. I think I, last I heard there's just over like 200 falconers in the state. Um, so this is not, a, it's not easy and it's not um, very big. Right. It's nice to be in like a tight knit community. Absolutely. With people who share your passion, right? And yeah. like, I love everything that's in place to ensure that like the animals needs and welfare are always top priority. And like, so it's so interesting hearing what you were saying about like making sure that like you have the proper weight and making sure that the animal is hungry, but not to like a point of maybe like being a little bit more ravenous than they needed to be because mm -hmm. that's such a huge thing in the dog training world. Right. And like, while we do need our dogs to be motivated for food, it should not be at the detriment that right. they're not getting free access to food as it is. Right. Yeah. There's a fine line between stacking the deck in our favor and creating desperation in an animal. Exactly. Yeah. You want the environment to be set up well, but he needs to be able to work at his best. So he needs to be as healthy as possible. Right. And yeah, depriving them of food is not going to get you there. Not you know, a It might work for a, a few days and make you feel good. And then it's gonna make you feel real bad shortly after. Right? Oh my God. Okay. So Kristen, if someone was interested in falconry, where, what would be a resource that you would suggest to them? Right? Like, is there like something they could read about? Is there like a, a group they could like join? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Usually the best kind of way to go is to look and see if your state has a falconry club. Um, it's definitely how I started and got into it here. So I looked and saw that there was a hawking club in Colorado and then just invited myself <laughs> and got to meet some people and just had to be really out there and ask to go out hunting with people. Um, so in most states have a hawking club or a falconry club of some kind. Um, so that's usually the best way to go. There's so many really intelligent and experienced people. And then from there, you know, go out and you just see if it's actually for you. It always sounds really cool, but it is a commitment. It is the biggest commitment I've ever made. And uh, let me tell you, we have a lot of animals <laughs> personally too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it's every day and it's not like having a dog even, I mean, that's a massive commitment. Um, it's just so, so different than your daily life that it's a big change that you have to be able to be willing to do. Um, so yeah, going out is it, and learning and watching them. It's really exciting and it makes you really 
want to do it, but hopefully helps you realize too, like, oh, is this actually something that I'm willing to put in the time and a ton of money into? Right. Um, <laughs> and then if, when people see your passion, then there's, falconers are really excited to, to pass on the, the whole trade, the, yeah, all of it. So, um, yeah, that's always a good place to start. And then you just got to study, study. Right. Oh my God. Okay. So, um, Kristen, if the listeners wanted to connect with you and see what you're doing with Chadwick, um, is Instagram the best place to find you? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I like to post all our flying and, and hunting okay. and, and my, my zoo animals a little bit too. So my, my handle, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, is Keeper Kristen. My name is spelled really weird. It's K-R-Y-S-T-I-N. Amazing. Okay. So I'll be sure to include a link in that in the show notes so people can find you. Kristen, thank you so much. This is such an awesome conversation. Thank you. All right, you guys, you know how much I love VetCS CBD products for my dogs. Great news. They make CBD products for humans. I got the orange flavored uh, dropper and I put it in my Lady Grey lattes and it is so freaking delightful. So you can get CBD for your dog. You can get CBD for you. Check out VetCS.com and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about how you can connect with me for training, you can go to my website, agfdogtraining.com. If you'd like more training inspiration and insight, you can follow me on Instagram at a good feeling underscore NCO. If you'd like to become a member and support the podcast, please check us out on Patreon. You can check us out at patreon.com slash disorderly dogs. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you really like this podcast and you want to go above and beyond for me, you could leave a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts to help more like-minded individuals find us.